Hello, and welcome to the latest ClearBridge podcast. This is Jeff Scholze, CFA, investment strategist at ClearBridge Investments. ClearBridge is a global equity manager with $208 billion in assets under management committed to delivering long-term results through authentic active management. We integrate ESG considerations into our fundamental research process across all strategies. Global markets have been upended in the last month by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, a move that has led to stiff economic sanctions against the world's second largest oil producer, exacerbating already elevated inflation and supply chain constraints and sparking volatility across asset classes. We have been planning for today's podcast well before Putin's threats turned into an outright military conflict and will seek perspective on the Ukraine situation as well as the near-term and secular outlook for industrial and related cyclical companies. From our guests, Hannah Wang, ClearBridge's Senior Industrials Analyst, and Pavel Robleski, Portfolio Manager for the firm's International and Global Growth Strategies. Hannah, I believe this is your first time to the virtual podcast booth, so welcome. And Pavel, I know you've been a regular participant in our podcast debates both in-studio and remotely, and bring some unique insights from your familiarity with Eastern Europe. We'll delve into how industrial companies and the regions they serve are managing through with the first international military incursion on the continent since World War II in today's podcast, How the Industrials Complex is Coping with Conflict. I know that I'm really excited about this podcast. I've been thinking about it all week, and I don't think it could be more timely because I'm really looking for your perspectives on the situation in Europe and obviously what are the implications for European growth and inflation. So Pavel and Hannah, thank you so much for for joining me here in the booth. Thanks for having us. Hello. Thank you, Jeff. And if you look at global growth prospects, they've been coming down over the course of 2022. In the U.S., growth was expected to be 3.6% in December. We're already down to 2.7%, and you're certainly seeing the expectations ratcheting down in the European Union as well. And a lot of this is being driven by higher inflation and what it's potentially going to do to the consumer outlook and central bank policy. In the U.S., we got a CPI print this week that was the highest that we've seen since 1982 for both headline and core inflation. And in looking underneath headline, it was the obvious impacts of higher energy and food that was driving a lot of that move higher. So it obviously brings up an important consideration. How sticky is inflation and is it ultimately going to cause central banks to be more hawkish? We got a little bit of a sense of that yesterday with the ECB surprising that they're going to be accelerating their QE wind down with purchases expected to conclude in the third quarter and opening the door to more potential rate hikes later in the year, even with the extreme uncertainty that we're seeing. So it brings up an interesting question, though. How durable is this inflation? And then obviously, what is this impact going to be to the European economy? So Pavel, I want to start off with you. Obviously, you're seeing inflation in energy and commodities, but you're also going to see some more global supply chain impacts. And a lot of people thought that the global supply chains are going to be fixed with Omicron being in the rear view. What challenges are you seeing in our other areas of the world? Could they step up and increase production to to maybe fill some of these gaps? Yes. Hi. Good afternoon, everyone. It's a pleasure to speak with everyone. Thank you, Jeff, for the for the introduction. You're right. We are faced with very uh, uncertain times. Of course, the economy around the world was already recovering from a very difficult period of the pandemic. And as you pointed out, it was very an, an unbalanced recovery. Some regions were recovering faster than others. Some sectors were recovering faster than others. But there were many imbalances in the economy 
on one hand, there were you know, excess demand boosts from fiscal programs. On the other hand, we saw manufacturing constraints due to different COVID protocols. So as you mentioned, we had seen many uh, supply chain issues, high prices of various components, high cost of transportation and so on and so forth. So companies were dealing with a number of global imbalances already. And now, as you know, we are witnessing another important shock to the global markets due to geopolitics. Of course, the war in Ukraine is, is a huge humanitarian crisis, hard to find uh, words to talk about it. But this war is, of course, impacting the global markets quite, quite significantly. And there are you know, significant short and long-term implications of, of this. As you mentioned, the West imposed massive sanctions on the Russian economy. Many Western companies have decided to suspend their operations in Russia or exit the Russian activities. And commodity markets have reacted quite aggressively. Russia and Ukraine are both large exporters of, of commodities. It's not only oil and natural gas, it's also things like fertilizers, like uh, wheat and other grains, and uh, many different metals. And in some of these commodities, Russia is a very important player. For example, in palladium, to my understanding, Russia accounts for something like 40% of that metal, which is used for some critical applications like catalytic converters in cars to reduce emissions. So we've seen prices of many of these commodities and metals inflate quite sharply over the last few days, pricing in a potential for significant supply interruptions and supply shortages. Now we know that over time, companies and, and commodity markets will adjust to this situation. We don't know how, how long it will take. It kind of depends on the, the duration of this conflict, on the path of future sanctions and even embargoes and even to some degree on the damage of the infrastructure like ports and rail. So these are some of the short-term things that we're seeing. We know that they will adjust, companies will adjust, just the timing is quite, quite uncertain. In terms of more longer-term impacts, I think there will be quite significant implications that it will have to uh, deal with, especially in Europe. We'll see significant changes to the defense policy, for sure. There will be implications for the European energy policy, and I think that that means significant also implications for some of the companies we are invested in. So obviously, a lot of different areas where, where you're seeing supply chain impacts, and not all of them are, are going to be short term in nature. Hannah, I, I want to turn over to you. Are you seeing any areas that are having some supply chain issues due to the conflict? Sure. You know, the industry that comes to mind is aerospace. Outside of the disruption we've already seen during COVID around labor and commodity inflation, right now there's a big concern around titanium. You know, as Pavel mentioned, uh, Russia produces quite a few metals and 30% of the global titanium supply comes from Russia. If you think about aircraft, titanium, it's a small percent of the overall metals used to make a plane. But if you don't have it, I mean, you literally can't make a plane. So this is an issue for Boeing and Airbus and really their whole supply chain. I'd say the good news is after the annexation of Crimea in 2014, a lot of these companies started building buffer stock. So they have some cushion right now. For Boeing, it's like 12 to 18 months. For Airbus, 10 to 12 and while that sounds like a lot of time to find alternative sources, the problem with setting up new titanium suppliers is it can take years to get through an extensive certification process. This is definitely something we're keeping an eye on. Now, Hannah, you mentioned building up buffer stocks really since 2014 in, in Crimea, but 
looking at defense budgets, they've actually been increasing in Europe as well since 2014. And obviously, defense and aerospace are areas that are, are getting a lot of love from investors right now because there's an anticipation of more defense spending globally, but in, in Europe in particular, especially with the 180 that we've seen with Germany. So is this an area that you think is maybe overbought at this time, or do you see a, a secular tailwind here? And, and if so, what areas look attractive? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, if I look at especially U.S. defense stocks, you know, they've been up, what, 15, 20% over the last month. Some of that is definitely justified. If you look at Germany, they're talking about doubling their 2022 defense budget to 100 billion euro. And there's an expectation that NATO will now massively increase defense spending. So some of the, the uptick is in stocks is justified, but there's a few things I'd keep in mind before we get too excited. The first is, to, you know, as you mentioned, Jeff, since 2014, NATO countries were already meaningfully increasing defense spend as a percent of GDP. You can look at the NATO data. A lot of countries have gotten to the 2% of GDP guideline for defense spending. Not all countries, but a lot of them. You know, Romania, Poland, Sweden, as an example, and Sweden's not technically NATO, but you know, they've been spending billions of dollars on missile defense systems in recent years. And, you know, these aren't countries you would to, you know, typically think of as spending a lot on defense. So the alarm in Europe regarding Russia has escalated, but it's not new. The second, you know, point I'd keep in mind is you have to think about how much money is going to get spent on equipment versus military personnel. You know, the U.S. spends about 25% of its budget on people, troops on the ground, and given Germany's very low readiness level, you know, I've heard as low as 30% when it really should be at 85%, I'd imagine a good portion of the spending is going to go towards troops, not just equipment, which is really what impacts the stocks. Third point I'd keep in mind is European countries are going to spend with European defense contractors. U.S. defense companies will certainly get some of the spending, but, but not all. And finally, I'd keep in mind the defense budget you know, any given year's defense budget gets spent over multiple years. Um, you know, if you think about the products, missile defense systems, aircraft, they all take time to produce, sometimes years. And then, you know, another example would be the Stinger missile that's getting consumed in Ukraine right now. That's coming out of NATO inventory, but Raytheon has actually not made a Stinger missile in years. So there's going to be a lead time to make those again. So all of this is to say, like, Absolutely, there will be incremental spending, but it's going to take time to see that. And you really got to parse through the numbers to think about what the real potential upside is from here now that you know stocks have been up 15, 20%. And it's, it's a little bit more of a nuanced exercise. What about commercial aerospace like Boeing and, and Airbus? Do you see any meaningful impacts there? Yeah, I mean, they both have defense exposure. Um, and so broadly, they should benefit longer term, but the much bigger driver of those stories is certainly commercial aerospace. I'd say, you know, as a direct impacts from the Russia-Ukraine conflict, I'm not worried about air traffic just yet. Russia domestic air travel is about 4 to 5% of global domestic. And then for international travel that goes through Ukraine or Russian airspace, a lot of that's just getting rerouted. So I would say, you know, it's, it's going to have some impact, but it's going to get more than offset, I think, by this continuing recovery coming out of the pandemic. Certainly, we've been waiting for international travel to pick up. And I think there's an expectation that this spring and summer, we should see 
much, much greater recovery. And so I think that's going to be the overarching story for those companies. Now, I want to switch gears here, and I obviously want to focus on the energy space since you're seeing some of the largest increases for for natural gas and and oil, but really what it means for renewables and non-U.S. industrials. Obviously, the global economy is looking to transition to being net neutral by 2050, but I, I think this may supercharge and bring forward that transition and have obviously a lot more urgency along with it. So, Pavel, you know, what types of companies are you looking for in this space? And obviously, they've derated over the course of the end of last year into this year. And are you seeing some attractive opportunities right now? Yeah, thank you, Jeff. You're right. We will definitely see uh, an acceleration of some of the trends that we witnessed before in terms of energy transition. We have some important exposure to these trends. Europe has to really rethink their uh, energy security policies. As you might know, about 35% of their natural gas is provided by, by Russia. And the European Commission is already working quite hard about presenting plans how to reduce that, that vulnerability. Just this week, there was a new plan presented by the EU Commission. The plan is called Repower EU. It's really about reducing European dependence on Russian gas, but it continues on the previous plan, such as FIT55 and the Green Deal, kind of to accelerate now the, the energy transition. The new plan has uh, a few pillars. Uh, one is about diversification of supplies, so getting more gas into Europe via LNG, via other pipelines from North Africa or, or Norway. But the other plan is, of course, about reducing the use of fossil fuels in different sectors of the economy, from homes to buildings to industry and, of course, power systems. So that plan assumes a massive boost in solar and wind installations, bigger targets than before, an acceleration of of, of those installations by uh, mostly improving the permitting process, putting more resources into permitting financing of these projects and uh, other measures such as electrification of heating at homes, the, the home sector in Europe accounts for something like 40% of gas, natural gas usage. Uh, so replacing gas with electricity, electric pumps, electric heating, all of this is on the, on the agenda. So there's a lot of uh, legislative momentum behind these initiatives. I think electrification of transport will also come into play. There will be more tax incentives on charging infrastructure and electric cars and so on and so forth. Now, in terms of exposure there, and of course, this is accelerating some of the trends that we were already expecting due to progress in technologies and decarbonization plans. Some of our industrial holdings will benefit from that acceleration. A company like Le Grand in France, which is providing mid-voltage applications, will, will be an important participant in energy efficiency plans. Another industrial holding that we have, Atlas Copco, provides the industry with very efficient energy efficient compressors. We have an exposure, of course, to solar installations for SolarEdge, a company that is providing electronics for, for solar installations. In other segments, we will see a lot of growth in wind farm development that should benefit one of our holdings. And if I am correct, and the transition to electric cars will also be part of these programs, some of our holdings exposed to EV penetration will also, also benefit. We have some investments in high-voltage cabling and electric, electric motors. So we'll see a lot of changes that will uh, be beneficial mid-term and long-term for a number of our holdings. Yeah, certainly. Russia supplied approximately 130 BCM of natural gas to Europe in 2020. The U.S. It currently has about 100 BCM of, of capacity to export. So certainly going to be a, a long-tailed theme and, and obviously a lot of opportunities as that transition takes place. 
Hannah, I want to turn over to you. And we've talked a lot about international industrials and the opportunities that we're seeing domestically. Is there any opportunities that have opened up based on the sell-off that we've we've had over the the course of 2022? And maybe more specifically, are are U.S. transports insulated from a lot of the global headwinds that we're seeing? So in terms of pullback, U.S. transports have actually held up really well in this environment. And so I don't know that there's an increasingly more attractive entry points right now because they've held up. But I think that's a reflection of the fact that they are protected um, to a large degree. I mean, outside of airlines, U.S. transportation operations are very U.S.-centric. And the rails and some trucking companies, they have strong pricing power where they can pass through a lot of the cost inflation. If you think about fuel, they have fuel surcharges and sometimes they can make extra margin from that. So the stocks have really held in well. So not necessarily better entry points necessarily, but, but they should be you know, pretty protected from the headwinds we're seeing globally. I'd say the exception would be, this is more sort of derivative impact, which is if we go into a recession, you know, these stocks will go down. They are high fixed cost companies, very economically sensitive. And, you know, if I think about the rails, they have a decent amount of financial leverage. So, you know, the stocks would pull back, If I would say, if we head into a recession, but they are often also the first stocks to come out of a recession. So generally still, I think, a pretty good place to be. And then everybody talks about, you know, the e-commerce. How much of a catalyst is, is this on transports and industrials overall? Are you, are you seeing, you know, positive impacts from this transition? Good question. You know, e-commerce, it gets a lot of attention because it has been growing so significantly, um, especially through the pandemic. But it's not that it's not that black and white. It's not all been good for transportation companies, and and the reason being is it's it's they've they've had a hard time figuring out how to make a profit, like increase profits from this trend over the last ten years. If you think about this shift from delivering packages from B two B business to business to now B two C direct to consumer, it's been really dilutive to margins and return on capital. I mean, just think about what it costs to drive to someone's home to drop off a bottle of toothpaste. Like, how do you, how do you make a profit from that? But, you know, companies like UPS have figured out that they can and absolutely need to charge a lot more for this kind of service. So they've been taking a lot of price and they're finally expanding margins, but not all companies are necessarily expanding margins right now. So it's, you have to find the winners and losers. So you know, there is a way to make money from it, but I think it really comes down to, you know, specific companies, their operations and how they're managing through this transition. Well, great, Hannah. And one thing I'll mention here, just from an overall economic standpoint, is obviously this is a pretty key geopolitical event that's causing some volatility in the markets. But if you look at all geopolitical events that we've had since the beginning of World War II, you've seen a median sell-off of about 5.7%. And it's taken around a month and a half for the markets to sell off and then fully recover. But ultimately, the path of the markets is really contingent on whether or not you're having a recession or you're in the midst of an an economic expansion. And although growth has come down here over the course of the last couple of months, it's clear that the U.S. is going to continue to be in an economic expansion, which ultimately will key higher earnings growth for the markets. And ultimately, I think the markets are going to look through this situation and and look at the long-term earnings trajectory for U.S. companies. And for cyclicals in particular, with inflation meaning being high, with you know 2.7% real GDP growth, 
that is a strong environment for nominal GDP, but also to really supercharge the operational leverage, Hannah, that you mentioned before, that is a key component for industrials, broadly speaking. And if we obviously were going to see a recession here, I don't think that the 10-year treasury would be over 2%, which it just hit today. So I think it's a really good opportunity for longer-term investors and then for investors that are interested in industrials and, and cyclicals, more broadly speaking. But with that being said, I just want to say, Hannah and Pavel, thank you so much for, for joining me here in the virtual booth. Your insights have been very helpful in trying to ascertain the opportunities and the risks that are out there because of the invasion. So again, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedules. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jeff. Enjoyed the conversation. And thank you, everybody, for jumping on the March update here of the ClearBridge podcast. We hope you have a safe and healthy rest of the month, and we hope that you'll continue to join us for future updates as we make our way through 2022. Take care. Please note the following. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. The opinions and views expressed in today's podcast are of the individual speakers as of March 11th, 2022, and may differ from other managers or the firm as a whole, and are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Any statistics reference have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of this information cannot be guaranteed. Neither Kleber's Investments nor its information providers are responsible for any damages or losses arising from any use of this information.